Hello and welcome. Welcome to Diverse Conversations. This is Ashka Patel. Thank you very much for joining me today as we continue to explore the Canadian pharmacy innovation space. Today, the guest we have with us is none other than Amy Oliver. Amy is an experienced healthcare executive and the founder and CEO of Amy Oliver and Company, where she offers trusted advisory services and professional leadership and business coaching to practice owners, leaders, academics, and organizations in health and social sectors. Amy has coached and advised hundreds of health leaders and practice owners. She's passionate about bridging the gaps around strategy, management, and leadership through knowledge translation at the crossroads of health and business. She is the founder of the Healthy Business Series, the Momentum Series, and the online leadership platform, The Stack. She holds an MBA with a dual concentration in organizational leadership and health administration. She's a pharmacist, a certified leadership coach, and a globally certified project management professional. Amy holds certificates in emotional intelligence and advanced strategic management and leadership. She is sought after keynote speaker and a member of the Speakers Bureau of Canada. Amy has won multiple health sector and leadership awards and is a recent alumna of the prestigious Governor General Canadian Leadership Conference. It gives me great pleasure uh, to have this conversation with Amy, where we'll be speaking about her experience, you know, going from uh, being a pharmacist to now becoming a healthcare executive and a coach um, who has really impacted the practice of many um, healthcare providers and organizations. Um, and it will be interesting to really lean on to her insights into where she sees the future of pharmacy here in Canada and that of healthcare sector as well. Stay tuned as we join Amy shortly. All right. Welcome back to Diverse Conversations. Now we have Amy joining us. Amy is joining us all the way from Manitoba. Amy, welcome to Diverse Conversations. And thank you for taking this time to have this conversation with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it too, because um, I think, um, you know, when you spoke at the Pharmacy U conference, uh, your keynote was just so inspirational. Um, it left us with a few thoughts to kind of think about, you know, what we need to do as a profession and also as individuals. Um, and I think that's what we are going to focus in, in this conversation today as well is, you know, um, what is it that you think about this profession? What are, um, you know, we'll, we'll ha have a few topics that we want to talk about, and I really look forward to hearing your insights. Before we get into the meat of the conversation, I think uh, let's start with uh, kind of sharing your journey, you know, from being a pharmacist to now establishing a practice in business and leadership consulting uh, with practice owners and healthcare organizations. You know, how did that happen? Kind of walk us through that, please. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So I've been working in the pharmacy community or industry for just over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And um, I started right out of high school and I just loved it. I I loved everything about this hybrid space between being part of the business community, boots on the ground, and also bridging into healthcare science, right? Mm -hmm. it, it just seemed like this perfect hybrid space. Um, and so I started there and and got into pharmacy school and, you know, went through the, the typical route, dabbled in a lot of things in pharmacy school, which I do recommend if any students are listening, you know, try to make sure that you you try everything. So did some research, did hospital, did community, played around in different spaces and community was where my heart was. I really loved the idea of being, you know, face to face right there in the communities. But when I got out and I started practicing, I actually didn't love it is the truth. I didn't love the patient care side of it, but what really lit me up was the, this, the meso and macro level. So the, what that means is working, 
you know, within the businesses, within the organizations, growing your teams, having students, putting better systems in place so people could do better work, you know, creating education material for the mm. patient. It was all about how do we build better systems so that people can do their work better and we can get better outcomes. Those are the parts that really lit me up more than the one-on-one -on -one conversations with the patients. And I learned that really, really quickly coming out of school. And so I think it's important for everybody to just recognize what part of what you do do you love the most? And then how do you slowly refine your, your practice over time? So you're spending most of your time doing the things that you love and also recognizing that it's okay to say, I don't love this part. And I do love this part. Right. And you can do that even clinically as well. Like when I did work clinically, I did not get very excited about working with diabetic patients, which is too bad because there's so many of them, especially in Manitoba. So I kind of, you know, not be that excited about a diabetic patient that walked in, but if you gave me a postpartum depression, I was in all my glory. Right. And so it's really, we each just need to recognize what do we love, right? Where, do, what do we love? And if you can find ways to work in that space, mm. then, you know, be able to make bigger impacts because you're engaged, you're doing really good work. So at, through this experience, you know, I worked in community and then I became an associate with shoppers. And even in that job, it was, it was great for a while. I was learning business. I had a team. I was learning how to manage people, um, you know, taking on students, having those ripple effects that were a little bit bigger than just my own practice. Started going onto the boards mm. and, um, and really loved that. And, and it continued to grow from there. Finally, I grew that role went to corporate. So I oversaw pharmacy operations for Manitoba and often Manitoba and Saskatchewan wow. um, for shoppers. And, and so that was really where it started. And every role that I've had continued to grow. But the goal was always, how do I find bigger and better ways to help more people? And so I decided during that kind of corporate journey that I wanted to be able to do that a bit differently. And I had this vision for this company that we now have. And the idea was always, how do you help healthcare providers and give them the type of support you would get in a corporate environment, but mm -hmm. while allowing them to maintain all of the autonomy that you get in an independent or niche practice? So how can you give them those tools, those systems, um, the support, the confidence to do amazing things in the way that they want to do them? Right. So, so that led me to doing my MBA. I had, uh, had a couple of kids. I thought doing an MBA with two-year-old twins at home and pregnant with my third kid would be the great, wow. great time to do an MBA. So went back to night school, um, and did my MBA over a few years. And, and then this company was born and, and now we're going on almost five years and here we are. Amazing. I mean, uh, two kids, twins, two years old, uh, with a third on the way and an MBA. Wow. You know, I am, <laughs> amazed <laughs> that's the power of um you know I think that's when you are when you have a vision that you're so motivated by and um you have a cause that you really want to work towards I think that kind of speaks to the passion you bring to this table um through the work that you're doing right um and you also uh, mentioned a very important thing when you were sharing your experience in your journey which was take your time to find out what is it that you like to do oftentimes you know I and this is again reflecting on my own personal experience, but also what I hear from others. A lot of people think that it's a quick solution to be like, okay, you know what, this is what I want. And th this is what my practice should look like. And let me just change this overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. But I'm so glad you pointed that out, because um, it is that fine tuning that is that is so critical to finding that. And speaking of that, um, you know, I think you did allude to this a little bit um, before as well. But what motivated you forage onto this path, which is 
so non-traditional for a pharmacist to forage in, especially in the Canadian space, because, you know, um, we don't have uh, many leaders who are who are doing what you do and would really kind of uh, want to learn that a bit more about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit on most of those points already, and that's that it was really important for me to find a role where I could help people. That's what lights me up. Um, help people have an impact, but do it in a way that others want to do it, right? So um, it's a bit different than sometimes a corporate environment. It's a bit different than working in a big firm. For me, it's about what do you, what do you want and how do I help you get there? My way is not always the best way. It's figuring out the best way for you, not right. the best way for me if I were in your shoes, right? Um, the other thing that I think motivates me is I like to have progress. So I like to work on, on projects projects and files um, where there's a start and there's a finish. And I think mm -hmm. part of that has to do with having a, a growth mindset, right? I like to go in, learn something new, try something new, help people get something, but then be able to say, you know, our work here is done. And so that's a big part of this consulting philosophy too, is that I'm not working with practices forever. Right. My work is well done when you don't need me anymore. And I think that's a bit of a different mindset than a lot of firms or consulting practices as well. Right. You know, I do want to be a partner with you. I want to help you work through things, but I want you to not need me anymore. And when you get to that point, then my job is well done. Right. And so it's a bit of a niche for sure. Um, and it, it's motivated through my own growth mindset, my own desire to have impact um, and to help people, but also my passion for translational knowledge, which is how do we take these amazing best practices from one industry and put them in another industry? How do we take them from, from business and leadership and make them thrive in healthcare? And how can we all be better for it? Right. Amazing. Thank you very much for sharing that. And, and you know, it's kind of um, what you mentioned about your consulting practice and it being more of a, a transitional, um, you know, where you're helping uh, a practice or an individual kind of cross that bridge um, and then allow them to explore it further. And if they need you, they can always tap into your expertise at any point in time thereafter. Um, kind of reminds me of, you know, teach a man to fish and he'll eat for life. <laughs> um, so I think it, it's exactly what you're doing. Um, and speaking of that, you do wear so many hats, you know, from being a pharmacist to coaching to that, that being an entrepreneur with a, with a successful business. Um, and you have also worked with various sectors outside of pharmacy in healthcare, especially, right? Like pharmacy is, yes, you, one of your focus, but you're also working with other healthcare providers and organizations as well. How have these experiences changed your perception about pharmacy and also about the healthcare industry at large? Yeah. So I think two things there. One is there is a lot in common in community-based healthcare practices, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little different in, in public health and hospital practice and things like that. But if you look at the, the core community health practices, your physiotherapy clinics, your family doctors, your dental practices, your pharmacies, your veterinary practices, they're all very much the same in my world in that we go to school forever to become masters of a certain clinical craft. Right. And then you come out and you're expected to know how to negotiate a lease, how to manage people, how to read financials, you know, how to navigate labor laws. Um, you know, there's so many, how to sit on a board, how to govern, you know, and, and yeah. we're just sort of thrown to the wolves. So any of those health sciences programs are the same and that you, you're great clinicians when you come out and they taught you very little of anything else. 
And so there's more in common than, than not. Um, the other thing that I think is important about pharmacy is that it's the most complex. Um, maybe not clinically, probably on par clinically, but from a, from an operational perspective, mm. it's much more difficult. You're managing huge amounts of inventory. You're at the mercy of other people's agendas, right? Whatever's coming yes. in the door, you don't get to carefully plan all of your appointments all day. Something like COVID hits, you know, if your dental practice and COVID hit and your team got COVID, you cancel your appointments, you close the doors, you lose a little bit of money, but it, it's manageable. Right. It's a very, very different scenario in pharmacy. Um, so I think there's that. The other thing that we need to think about, though, in terms of what's different between many of the other healthcare sectors and pharmacy is that pharmacy is much, much more ripe for disruption. And while I try to be very optimistic about all of the wonderful things that pharmacy can do, I'm also a little bit afraid that if we don't do them and we don't do them well, then we risk being obsolete in yes. some ways. So, um, you know, we look at pharmacy and we go, it's largely cognitive. We're starting to do a little bit of hands-on stuff, vaccination, some point of care testing in some places, a little bit of screening, but largely it's mostly cognitive practice. Right. There's an enormous amount of dollars spent on pharmaceuticals in this country. Yeah. Um, in the short term during COVID, pharmacies performed really well, right? It was good. COVID yes. was good for business in it pharmacy. Was. But in the long term, I actually wonder whether or not it is. And we've seen huge amounts of behavior changes. People are adopting technologies earlier than they used to. You know, my parents are able to online grocery shop now. Like they never would have learned that if COVID exactly. hadn't. They would have just never chose to, right? So we're seeing behaviors have changed. And because of those behaviors changing, people are going to be really comfortable with pharmacy disruptors more so than they would have if COVID hadn't happened. There's an increased scope of practice, but the staffing challenges and the workforce crisis persists. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, you know, although we want to be excited about the scope of practice changing because we've advocated for this forever, for so long, so many years, and now we finally get it. For a lot of people with boots on the ground, what it feels like is you did such amazing work during the pandemic, and we are now going to reward you with more work, yes. right? Yes. And so is it sustainable and can we keep people engaged and can we keep a workforce that we need to actually deliver on this new model that we're, we're really pushing for and have advocated for for a long time? And I think it's a delicate balance. And that's something that we're not seeing to the same degree, I think, in other practices. The scope of practice hasn't been changing rapidly for very many other healthcare professionals right now, right? And so we, we do have a lot to think about. And the part that I worry about is that everybody is just so, so busy working, 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 working all the time that we're not actually having enough people spending their energy on figuring out what is this going to look like five years from now? And how are we going to make sure we're prepared? And how do we make sure that we get there safely, um, psychologically safely? Um, yes. How do we make sure we're staffed? And how do we make sure that we have a profession made up of change navigators and change handlers. I, I'm not sure we're there yet. And healthcare's like, we could go on all day about healthcare as a whole. I mean, it needs major changes. It's not sustainable the way it is. I think we need to really think carefully about how we operate in healthcare and the overall models. And um, it, it's a really delicate space because 
healthcare professionals of all kinds are very highly trained. It takes a long time to get more of them. Exactly. Right. And so we need to make sure they're not leaving at the rates that they're leaving now. We need to make sure they want to work. Um, they want to show up. They want to keep working. We can't have these increased rates of retirement earlier than planned. We have, you know, aging, an aging population right now that we need to figure out how to navigate. Um, so it's really, really challenging. There's a lot, a lot of, a lot, a lot of things we could talk about. In this. <laughs> I agree. And thank you very much for sharing that because I think oftentimes, um, um, you know, we, we have, uh, especially as a, as pharmacists right now having this conversation and, and, you know, primarily, especially my experience has been more towards the pharmacy profession, but very well aware and attuned to the um, the digital space, the digital health tech space in terms of what's happening. And, you know, thank you for sharing those insights, because I think it really highlights what we need to do better as a profession. Um, and I can already like, you know, think of a few things like themes that are coming out, burnout, um, managing burnout, not just in pharmacy, but I think in healthcare overall, managing burnout is so critical. Um, but also at the same time, it's like, you know, where do we bring that unity uh, within the profession, but also within the interprofessional organizations and entities to kind of make sure that we are able to navigate this huge healthcare system ship that we are, um, especially in the Canadian landscape, like, you know, we already starting to see a little bit of disruption with the concept of privatization or hybrid healthcare systems being brought into the political space. Um, and that, I think, also opens up a few concerns <laughs> um, in terms of where we go next and how do we navigate that and what do we do? Um, but you gave me some really good points of thoughts. And I think to that, um, you already alluded to some of them, but you know, what are some other dangers to the pharmacy profession as we are evolving and, and you know, we're seeing these new ways or consumer behaviors also that we are starting to be a shift, shift of? Yeah. So I think there's a lot we need to think about in pharmacy or risk manage maybe is the right mm -hmm. way to put it. Like there are risks and we need to figure out how to proactively manage them. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're in the middle of this moment in time where we're redefining what the role of a pharmacist looks like, right? right? And if we don't do that well, we risk being obsolete at some point. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I talk often to pharmacy student classes um, about, about disruption in the future of pharmacy. And one of the things I do in these classes often is poll the class using an anonymous polling tool. And I ask a question early in, in that talk where um, I ask them how they're feeling about getting out and practicing pharmacy the way that they're seeing it being practiced. And um, I can't remember the, the exact options they have, but it's like, I'm really excited about getting out and practicing. I'm, you know, sort of excited. I'm kind of dreading it, or I'm absolutely dreadful of it. And I'll tell you, there is a huge proportion fall on the dreading pharmacy practice side. Wow. And I think they're honest because they're, they're students, they're in class. It's anonymous. Uh, I'm not an employer. I'm not a teacher. Um, it's lower risk to be honest, but you'd get a handful of people that are excited uh, and, and choosing to answer in that way. And that is very concerning to me because we are also seeing generational shifts. We're seeing graduating students this year holding out on five, 10 job offers because they're not ideal. You know, whereas when, when I graduated, everybody just really wanted a job and they wanted money and they wanted to travel and they wanted to buy a car and, you know, all, all of these things <laughs> move out of their parents' basement. And um, 
it doesn't seem as urgent to, to new grads now to practice in a way that they're not personally aligned with or that they're going to personally value. The idea of what is acceptable at work and in your career and in your profession has changed. And so we really need to be doing a much better job on the people side and the professional wellness side and the autonomy and the meaningful work side, which I talked a lot about at Firm CU, right. um, to be able to staff this workforce. Because even if we can nail the scope and even if we can nail compensation and even if we can, you know, get all of these other pieces right, people don't want to do this job anymore. It doesn't matter. Yes. Right? It won't matter. And so there's that. And I think... Um, you know, we're starting to see the regulations change. We're starting to see them start to keep up, at least in some provinces, not in Manitoba. Um, but we're starting to see the regulations and the compensation get better than they have been before. Um, but I do question whether or not our pharmacy teams are ready for all of these changes. You know, we put on a really brave face. We have advocacy groups that are asking for this. They're doing a great job in the media. They're doing their jobs really, really well. But in my job, I'm talking to the people with the boots on the ground who are really struggling to figure out how do I navigate the workflow? How do I navigate a team who's not excited about this because they're exhausted? How do I implement new services when I'm down three staff members? How do I do this? How do I actually do this? Right? And so that's the part that I think is dangerous is that we're doing so well on one side, finally moving the needle but we're not doing well enough at helping people actually figure out how do you operationalize this? How do you support your teams? And how do you still get excited to go to work every day? And how do you not let it impact the rest of your life? I got to tell you the number of people that I know in pharmacy who had really significant impacts on their personal life, trying to keep a pharmacy open during COVID is high, right? It, those are very real things. Um, Right. Yeah, we, we don't hear that. that. Yeah, we don't talk about it. Even inside of the, the the profession, we're not talking about it enough because we're trying to put on this, you know, brave and resilient face and we're trying to advocate for all these great things. But what if we get them? And what if we aren't what if we're not ready? You know, what if we're not supporting our people? Um, it's hard. It's really they're, they're the hard conversations and they're the complexities of changing our scope and changing our role and figuring out where do we belong uh, in this system in the next five to 10 years. And we can't ignore the complex, hard to talk about issues while we're putting on this like really happy, exciting show about all the wonderful things we can do um, on the surface on, you know, in, in principle, but can we really do it in the hearts and the minds of the people that are working and how do we make sure that they're ready for that? So that's, that's what needs to be different. Um, wow. I mean, I have, I think you, you unpacked quite a few um, very important uh, points there. Um, and, you know, I agree with you. I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I think we have been in that asking mode in the pharmacy profession for such a long time, you know, where for the past decade here in Ontario, we were asking for minor ailments. And then the pandemic comes and all of a sudden our baskets just being topped up constantly with new things to do, but we have not been given the breathing space to kind of internalize it and try to figure out what's the right balance, how do we operationalize it or, you know, all of that. And, and also get that buy-in from clinicians who are actually on the front lines, who will be actually providing these services, like not even giving them enough time to become comfortable with these new skill sets that they need to develop. And skills take a little bit of time, especially when you're out of school, it takes a little bit of time to develop. And 
trying to find that balance. So definitely, I think we were asking, 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 all of a sudden now we're in that receiving mode. And it's just like, we never had that buffer period where we would be able to create an action plan to, to implement this in the right way into practice. That said, you know, what, I guess, what innovations do you think we need to consider? Um, you know, you hit on a few things over there in terms of, um, you know, navigating the compensation, giving that autonomy back, which I think is is a very critical point to be considered. Um, what what innovations do you think we need to, you know, consider or implement to make sure that our profession survives these tides um, that are coming for us? Yeah, I think there's a few things. Like, I think, you know, the role of technology is really important, but also needs to be carefully navigated from a systems perspective. Again, I mentioned this briefly at PharmacyU as well, but Anytime we have new technological solutions that look like they're contributing to better care, better efficiency, and so on, there are still going to be people who are left behind. So for example, if you say, okay, well, we're going to have this big uptake on virtual care. This is fantastic. It's going to make things more accessible. That's only true for some people, right? And so we have to be careful to navigate innovation to make sure that it's not actually widening the gap. Um, so that part is important. Yes. But at the same time, you take like a brick and mortar pharmacy, for example, you're going to see some of the big chains are moving to central fill. You're going to see smaller conglomerates are figuring out more efficient ways to do it. You see high script volume pharmacies that will have things like script pros and things like that helping. So at the time, the value add time, the, the people time can be spent on the more important tasks. But we're still going to have, you know, a rural community pharmacy doing 30, 40,000 scripts a year that maybe can't afford technology like that. So from innovation, I think, yes, we need it, but we also need to make sure that it's not widening the gap in a, from a health equity perspective, but also from a service provider perspective. So if you're a slower pharmacy that can't staff and you're having a hard time serving your community and you're not going to implement minor ailments and you're not doing vaccinations because you can barely keep your head afloat, could we see, for example, like a grant program where you could get, get a grant that could help close that gap? So now all of a sudden your technicians aren't counting pills all day. You've got, you know, a small version of some kind of automated dispensing system so that the people can focus their time, you know, and in Ontario, you can get, the technicians can get flu shots even, right? Or vaccination, exactly. which is yeah. different than most provinces. So are they spending their time in the best place? It's a real a basic concept in terms of operational efficiency is where is their waste? And one of the pieces of waste that we are most guilty of in pharmacy is skilled talent. Are people spending all of their time practicing at the top of their game? And I'm sure when you go into many pharmacies, there's pharmacists doing tasks technicians can do, technicians doing tasks that assistants can do, assistants doing tasks that a high school student could do for a couple hours after school, like filling vials and taking out garbage and filing and things like that, right? We need to make sure that we're doing a better job of becoming really efficient. Um, but part of that is how do we do it in a way where we're mindful of not just advancing some, but actually closing the gap instead of widening the gap. From a healthcare perspective, I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to collectivistic leadership. And um, we need to think a lot more about the complexities, navigate the politics, and think about social innovation in healthcare people operate in a very siloed and reactive environment in, in this country, most countries, I would say, but we are very reactive in our healthcare system. Um, and we need to do a much better job of that and looking at where does healthcare interact 
with other parts of our, our lives and our communities and things like housing, for example. You know, it's an interesting conversation if you really look at it because we're going, okay, well, we have huge housing issues, lots of houseless people in our communities. They have immense costs to the healthcare system. Some of them are, you know, going to the ER multiple times a month. But healthcare costs fall provincially, houseless costs often fall municipally, people aren't talking, and any of those fixes are not going to get somebody reelected in the next cycle. There are long-term solutions that we need to start working on, right? So social innovation in healthcare is going to require us looking across sectors, looking at holistic approaches and trying to figure out how do we heal a broken system that goes far beyond a hospital or a region or a municipality or one political portfolio. That's amazing. Wow. Um, social innovation um, in healthcare, I think uh, that is uh, something that we definitely need to seriously consider. Also, um, I know you had kind of spoken about this at the pharmacy you as well, you know, in terms of encouraging um, pharmacy professionals and, you know, people who have an invested interest in the pharmacy industry to also start thinking of ways of how can we bridge these gaps. Um, and oftentimes, you know, I think social innovation might be the the one opportunity for us to kind of help create that equity um, in, in kind of helping making sure as you were you know mentioning earlier as well is you know how do we support those ones who may not have the resources to kind of make sure that they they can improve their practice as well tapping into all all of the experiences that you have spoken about so far um, and also from your own personal experience you know being a woman healthcare provider and an entrepreneur um, you know one thing we are very uh, well we're aware of aware of is you know the the wage gap that exists um especially the gender um gender wage gap that exists in healthcare and pharmacy um and also being a woman in entrepreneur i'm sure you have had to you know you have ha you have some in interesting experiences as as you are navigating um the path you know how how can we close these gaps and how can we encourage uh, more women healthcare providers to you know embrace these roles get equitable pay, become more important players within the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I have, we could do a whole podcast just on this, Aska. I think that's another episode down the, down the line, but I'll give you yes. a, a somewhat a shorter answer. Um, I think the very first thing to recognize is although there are great and important ways that we can help support individual women to navigate mm. this really messy time, and then we need to do them because social change is going to take decades, but yes. we need to help individual women. However, we need to spend equal or more time fixing the broken system, right? We've spent mm. so much time trying to make women a better fit inside of the spaces and the systems that exist. And we need to be spending more time making the systems and the organizations a better fit for women. Right. It's a different perspective. It's very important. We need organizations to be able to take a deep dive and know how to do this, right? Yes. They need to know how do you take a deep dive and look across policies and structures that are, you know, maybe accidentally, but still actively discriminating against women. Mm -hmm. It takes something as simple as like family, flexible family policies inside of organizations. Mm. They're there because we have more women in the workforce. We have more people with dual centric families. So two, you know, two, two working parents or, or women who are both job oriented and family oriented. 
But if you look in your, you know, in small independent practice, big organizations, big chains, if you look inside your organization, you go, these are all the family friendly policies that we have. I want to know, do the men use them too? Right. Because if you have policies that only women are using, you're not closing the gap. You're right. supporting individual women, but the gap is not actually closing, right? So yes, we need to be able to teach women to negotiate better. We need to make sure that we're identifying the, the structures and the, the deeply rooted issues inside of organizations that contribute um, sometimes unknowingly to the to the gap, both in pay, but also in um, positions. So we have less right. women in leadership in healthcare yes. than we do men, which is shocking since about 80% of the healthcare workforce is made up of women. Leadership is very low. Yes. Um, so those things are all important. So we need to support the individual women to navigate it now, but we need to do a whole lot of work in the organizations and the systems that are influencing individuals. And I'll add one more thing. And that's that we spend so much time talking about how do we fix things for women, but we mm -hmm. need to also be talking about how do we start redefining what it means, means to be a man. Agreed. Right. We cannot have more women present in the workforce doing all of these things without changing what it means to be a man. It needs to be very acceptable and normal for men to not be working excruciating long, excruciatingly long hours. We want them going to the soccer games and the holiday concerts and, you know, being an active part um, of domestic responsibilities, being somewhat responsible for elder care as well. Mm -hmm. you, know, you get to be around my age, you know, I'm pushing 40 right away. And it's, it's no longer just childcare and domestic responsibilities and my job, it's now also layering in being responsible for helping, you know, my parents and my grandparents like, navigate all of the things that are changing in their spaces as well. And so that falls heavily on women and Absolutely. we need to find a way to make sure that it's very acceptable and also desirable for men to want to be part of that space. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Um, as you rightly mentioned, I think we will be bringing you back in for another episode where we'll be talking strictly this, because uh, I think uh, uh, this is an area I'm very passionate about as well. And I know you are very passionate about this area as well. And it would be great to, you know, have a more dedicated conversation um, to uh, around this topic as well. But thank you very much for sharing those insights. Um, I so agree. I think it's about um, changing the narrative um, and obviously it doesn't happen overnight, but um, I'm hopeful that, you know, more conversations around this topic will will generate hopefully more interest and, and we'll be able to at least move the needle in the right direction um, so that we are we're creating a more equitable society for all so that we are all able to flourish together um, and work together. Speaking of which, I know you have also had an incredible opportunity to be part of the Governor General's Leadership Program um, in the past year. Um, what an incredible honor. How was that experience and, you know, what were the learnings, if you can share with us today, um, you know, because I'm sure it must have been an eye-opening experience for you. So I, I really look forward to hearing about this. Yeah. So maybe I'll start by just sharing a little bit about what that is. Yes. Uh, sure lots of the, the people listening have never heard of that. So the Governor General Canadian Leadership Conference is what it's called. And um, it's held every, I think usually every four years, three wow. or four years. And basically the way it works is they they select uh, about 200 emerging leaders from mm -hmm. across Canada and across sectors. Mm -hmm. And um, they bring them together. And it's a, it is about three weeks um, long. So it's a very wow. long. <laughs> And so the way it works is everybody comes together in the first few days, you participate in a more traditional conference. So it's, mm -hmm. it's in one place, there's lots of speakers coming in um, and you're hearing just amazing things. Right. 
And then after that, that initial um, conference, you get split up into small groups and each small group travels to a different part of Canada mm. and you get to spend about 10 days um, traveling around, having different experiences with your small group. So um, I got to participate in this last June and it was really incredible. The small group I was in was a group of really amazing people um, and very diverse in terms of different types of experiences. So we had some health people there, a family physician. We had someone who ran uh, an immunization program in the East Coast. We had someone who works wow. in hospice care. Um, and then we also had people who worked in First Nations economic development and city management and union environments. And so it was very, very robust uh, set of, of absolutely incredible people um, with very, very diverse perspectives and experience, both um, across industries, but also geographically across Canada. Mm. So we came together in this small group and for about 10 days, um, we were in Southern Ontario. So it was actually in and around Toronto, Toronto Waterloo area. And um, it was incredible. You spend 10 days having the most intense experience, maybe of a lifetime. So you get on the bus 6.30 in the morning and you spend every moment of that day until you know 11 o'clock at night going on different um, site visits and stops and listening to the communities and uh, the stories. And so I can't share too much. There's kind of this of rule that you can't share too much about what you talked about in these videos, but I can tell you where I went and, and, and some of the things that we did. So I won't list them all. We probably went to 50 places uh, on this trip, but we do things like go listen to stories from teachers unions um, mm. about their experiences during the pandemic. We would, visit different housing initiatives and learn about, you know, the, the impacts of, of lack of housing um, and some of the really neat innovative ideas of how they're trying to fix some of these problems too. We got to meet with an investigative reporter at the Globe and Mail. We got to go to health tech incubators. We got to go to the theater and hear from actors and producers about the impact of the pandemic on the arts. Mm -hmm. Um, we went to First Nations, we, um, we went to a fish farm to learn about sustainable farming and slept on the grass uh, at the farm one night. <laughs> uh, and then you get up the next day and you go, you know, you go on 10 more visits and, um, and we went, I'll mention one more, we had a really um, eye opening and impactful visit to the London Mosque. And it was mm. the one year anniversary of that tragedy in London. Right. Muslim family yeah, was yes. hit by the truck. And we got to go inside the mosque and listen to the community and hear about the impacts of Islamophobia and the things that we can be doing better, right? So and then all day, every day for 10 days, um, we did this as a group. So we became very, very close as a group. We're still all in touch now. Um, and we got to hear the perspectives from the people on site and these issues that are facing our communities every day. But we also got to get back on the bus and then hear about the perspectives of these people with very diverse geographical industrial um, perspectives of the issues that we were seeing, right? Right. Uh, and at the end, you come back as a group of 200 and you work together to basically present what you saw to the Governor General of Canada. And, and the idea is that we're kind of the eyes and ears for the Governor General of all these things going on around Canada and, and wow. come back to each other. And so it's a absolutely unreal um, experience. And I highly recommend people try to apply to get into this program um, when it opens up again next, because it's, it's life-changing. 
I can I can only imagine uh, you know the impact it was have had and what an incredible experience to be had um, you know and, and again I think uh, you know it, it is like such an expansive experience because you're going you're crossing so many boundaries and borders of systems that are and the understanding the the complex intricacies of these systems and the way they are designed and um, I don't think there is a better way of learning the impact um, policies and decisions can have on the ground level, unless you do something like this. Um, but also something, this is something we are not taught as healthcare providers or clinicians, um, you know, in terms of understanding impact on such a broad level, right? On such a macro level. Uh, and that is, wow. Uh, I would definitely like, you know, I think, thank you very much for sharing this experience because I think I'm sure you've inspired at least a few of the listeners to, you know, consider applying when this opens up again in the next few years. Um, but this is incredible. And, you know, as we wrap up this conversation, I think coming on such a high note <laughs> um, with your experience, how do you describe the future of uh, the healthcare industry um, and also the future of pharmacy in the next five to 10 years? Um, if it, you know, I, I asked this question together just in case if there's similarities, at least you don't have to repeat them. Yeah, I think in, in pharmacy specifically, it will depend how we respond, right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, people like you, people like me, our, our advocacy groups, we need to do a better job of making sure that the people with the boots on the ground know what's happening and what's coming. I think some of them are so busy that they honestly right. just, they just don't know. Right. Uh, so we do need to make sure that we're preparing them and also helping them understand why we need to be prepared. So mm -hmm. we can do that well and not be obsolete. Um, and if we do things well, I think we will become more socially innovative. I think we'll see community pharmacies specifically start to look more like community health hubs, system navigators, um, we'll see an increase in niche practices because kind of going back to some of the things we said before, it, it is really hard to be really, really, really good at everything. And at some point we need to stop thinking that we can actually do every single thing well and continue to take more and more on our plate. So it, we want the scope, we want those abilities, we want the compensation, but you also need to be able to make choices so that you can do things really, really well. And you need to be brave enough to make those choices. So I think that's, you know, the big part for pharmacy in addition to the things I said before. I think for healthcare, um, we need to be much better at being less reactive, right? Mm. It's reactive for so long. It's now understaffed. We're underprepared for what's happening. Um, we need to have a, a drastic increased focus on leadership, psychological safety, professional wellness, Mm -hmm. um, we cannot run a system like this at the mercy of the people that are holding it together anymore. Exactly. Um, and we need to be socially innovative and look at the relationship with healthcare across sectors. So immigration, housing, education, you know, how do we start to work? I mean, we're, we kind of suck at still just working interprofessionally in the healthcare system, never mind taking a whole healthcare system and getting them to work collectivistically or collaboratively with other sectors. So it's a huge, oh, it's a huge, huge feat. Um, but I don't think we have a choice anymore. I don't yes. think that we can come out of this stronger and better mm -hmm. and create a better future for, for our children and for a system for our country if we don't try really hard to do that. 
Right. Wow. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that because, um, you know, I know like you, given your extensive experience and, and the uh, incredible work that you do uh, across various sectors and uh, and practices, um, I'm so happy to hear your thoughts on this. And I'm so glad that we're able to share this with the audience at large. And, and really, that's the hope is, you know, as you rightly mentioned, we want to make sure that we bring this information forward um, so that people know exactly what's going on or what to you know think about as they are starting to prepare for the future, um, at least in, in terms of being a bit more ready than of just kind of getting an announcement the day before that, hey, you're again now going to be immunizing, you know. Um, you definitely do not want to have a repeat of those, uh, that's for sure. But thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I really look forward to, you know, having an opportunity to have you back again. I think uh, we have a special topic just for you for the next time, for sure. <laughs> Um, but with that said, uh, you know, you have been an amazing inspiration to me um, and just like me to many others. Um, thank you for leading such incredible work that you do. Um, we will also be linking all your information down in the description box below. So I, I really encourage anyone who's interested in learning more about your work and like working with you to please reach out to Amy um, through the various social media handles that we'll be listing down just so that uh, you can also tap into the expertise that she brings. And, you know, you're a passionate, passionate um, leader, which um, who I think, uh, you know, people will really benefit from your insights in terms of how they can improve their practice and be much more uh, creative, rewarding career for themselves. Yeah. And I think I'll, I'll add to that, you know, some of it sounds a bit doomsday, right. <laughs> but I think, I think it's because I'm a realist, right? Yes. I'm, I want to be optimistic, but I'm also a realist. We have to figure out how do we actually navigate this and how do we actually do it? Exactly. Um, but I think if we're going to leave one message for the people mm -hmm. that are listening, it's that you get to choose what part you're going to play in this. Yes. You are allowed to make choices that are good for you and not just choices that are good for the people that you serve. Mm -hmm. right? And by doing that, you'll actually have a bigger impact and you'll have a, a bigger legacy and more ripple effects across your community than if you try to be absolutely everything to everybody. Okay. So it's, it's, we look at it a bit backwards sometimes, but yes. the reality is you will be better for it. And so will your communities. If you really figure out what you're passionate about and you figure out what part you can play in this whole hugely changing that system right now. Um, so that's really, really important. And the last thing I'll say is really carefully consider whether or not you're falling into the stereotypes of what it means to be a pharmacist, about what pharmacies need to look like, about what healthcare needs to look like, are you influenced by these norms and this, these stereotypes that exist about what practice should and could look like, or are you influencing what those norms look like? And you can become someone who changes, you know, does things differently and influences what pharmacy practice looks like in your own way. And then by doing that, other people will see you practicing differently and they'll start to believe that things are different for them too, right? Um, you get to make choices. You are completely responsible for your own happiness and your own, um, your own engagement. And it's about finding the, the places and the spaces and the ways that align with the things that light you up. And when you do that, your impact will be really big. Absolutely. What a what an incredible note, um, you know, to um to wrap up this conversation. I really feel like we can have we can continue talking, and I'm I'm just like ready to hear these pearls of wisdom from you. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, um, I think 
what you have done here just by sharing that message is you have actually given permission finally to pharmacists and pharmacy professionals, especially to kind of be okay with, you know, saying no to certain scopes of practices or to kind of choose practice or create a practice that caters to their interest and what they can bring. Um, I don't think we have heard this message before. So <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, I know you had you had alluded to this to the pharmacy you keynote as well, where you had mentioned create a or carve a practice that you really want to be a part of and not do everything and anything. But uh, I think uh, we'll, we'll certainly make sure that we, we continue this conversation with you in the near future, where we can kind of unravel how to create that dream practice of ours and you know tap into that expertise that you bring as well amy thank you so much for making this time and and sharing such incredible insights so so grateful thank you once again um and i'm just you know grateful that we had this conversation and uh, thank you again for coming onto this podcast Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited uh, to hear it when this goes live. And for anybody who's listening, you can feel free to reach out to me. I think networks are very important as we navigate this together. And so it's an open invitation uh, to anybody to, to reach out. You can find me. I think, Aska, you're going to put the contact information in the notes, right? So yes. yeah, I look forward to hearing from some of you soon. Absolutely. Yep. And as Amy mentioned, we will have all her contact information in the description box below. So please feel free to reach out and we'll be tagging her on all the social media platforms as well. So you'll, you'll be able to reach her directly. Uh, but please do make this opportunity to connect with Amy. She has some great um, insights and she's an incredible person. And I'm sure you'll just love um, connecting with her and you know learning from her um, and sharing those insights. Amy, thank you once again. It was a pleasure having you. Um, and to all our listeners, thank you for joining. Until next time. Bye-bye.